Open your Bibles tonight to the book of Philippians. I better do what God has called me to do and not what I just think is funny or cute sometimes. But in Philippians chapter 3, I want us to begin tonight by reading the first 11 verses. Now, we're working our way through Philippians on these Wednesday nights. If you have to miss a week, that's okay. Each sermon is a standalone sermon. But it's helpful for me to have a book like this that we can just work our way through. And last night... I said, I'm going to read uh, the first part of Philippians chapter 3 and just see what God might say to me as far as the structure for this sermon tonight. And let me say here that I don't know what you do in the evenings when you're home from, say, 7 o'clock until midnight. I don't know what you do, or 11 o'clock, whatever time you go to bed. But I would encourage you, if it's where you can, and certainly with family responsibilities and things that you're doing there, it would impact that. But during that four to five hour window that most of us just call the evening, if you could ever, without taking away from your other responsibilities, if you could ever just maybe carve out a few minutes and read the Bible. I know probably most of us here have our quiet times in the morning and our prayer times in the morning. And that's, that's good. That's how it should be. But I like to, at night, to spend a little time, most nights, reading something out of the Bible. And that's what I did last night. I read more than Philippians 3, but I read these first 11 verses. And I want to say before we get into this tonight, that as wonderful as this book of Philippians is, and it's one of the greatest letters in all the New Testament, the theme of the book is joy. Paul is writing a letter of encouragement from a Roman prison. And the topic is joy. And he's telling people not in prison how they can have joy in their hearts. I had a request a few days ago to write a letter to someone who is in prison and try to encourage that person, which I will do. Uh, but this is just the opposite of that. This is a letter coming from a prison to people who are not incarcerated. And it's a letter of encouragement. And it's a letter of, uh, of joy. Now, in these 11 verses tonight, the theme of what we're going to be thinking about tonight and what Paul was writing about, the theme is faith. Faith. What are you trusting in? Everybody here tonight and everybody listening at home has faith. We all have faith. And yet faith demands an object. And so the question is, what is it exactly that we're trusting in? As wonderful as this entire chap book of Philippians is, and as many well-known verses as there are in Philippians, these verses we're looking at tonight are my favorite verses in the whole book. It's not the most well-known part. It's not the most famous part. But to me, it's the most important part. So let's just begin reading Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. Paul said, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For to me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. So Paul is saying, I'm going to be writing some things here that you've heard me say before, but it's very important. And then he says, beware of dogs. He's not talking about animals here. He's talking about those who would try to do spiritual damage to them. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. What is this? He's talking about those Jewish legalists who were teaching that in order to be saved, that uh, you had to be, the men had to be circumcised. They were, he calls them the mutilators here, the mutilation. But in verse 3, he says, We are the circumcision 
who worship God in the spirit. He's saying the important thing is not the external. The important thing is the heart. Who rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. In other words, Paul was writing to people who were being taught by these Jewish extremists that if you were a Jew, then you were acceptable to God. Now, we have a group that's about to go to Israel. And if you go to Israel today and you strike up a conversation with a Jew, unless that Jew has been saved, and you ask that Jew, do you know the Lord? Are you saved? Do you know you're going to go to heaven when you die? What that Jew is going to say to you is, I'm Jewish. I'm a child of God. I'm a son of Abraham, a daughter of Abraham. And when I die, I'm going to heaven because I am Jewish. In fact, on one of our trips, we were in a bookstore there, not far from the garden tomb in Jerusalem. And I was talking to a Jewish man, and I was asking him about his relationship to the Lord. And he said to me, he got on to me pretty good. He said, young man, you can go to any place in the world and do evangelism, but don't do it in Israel. We are the Jewish people. We are the people of God. We are the root. You are the branch. And we're right with God because we're Jewish. Well, that was prevalent in Paul's day. It is prevalent today on the part of many Jews. They're sincere. They really think that because they're Jewish that they are saved. And these here that Paul is referring to were teaching that not only were they saved, they, they thought they were saved not only because they were born Jews, but because they had been through all the Jewish rituals, all the Jewish rites of passages, had had the circumcision performed. And so they thought, well, I'm certainly right with God because I've done all these things. And Paul is saying none of that amounts to a hill of beans. In verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him, that is to know Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul was raising this question to these, to these saints, these Christians back in Philippi, and many reading it who might have not yet come to know the Lord, and the question he's asking is, what exactly are you trusting in. Now, I've told you what many Jewish people are trusting in today. And I feel very comfortable saying that because if they were sitting here tonight, they would say, he's right. That is what we're trusting in. Some of my dearest friends in the world are Jewish people. So I'm not speaking out of school or out of turn. I'm not saying anything that's not, that's not right. But as we think about what is the object of our faith, on your outline tonight, notice the danger of misplaced faith. Misplaced faith. Not no faith, not the absence of faith, but notice the danger of misplaced faith. First of all, Paul 
could have, and at one time in his life he did, trust his religious background. Look again in verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day. That's what the law said was supposed to happen. Of the stock of Israel. He's saying, I'm a, I'm a Jew through and through. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Paul said, if anybody could have faith in their religious background, it's me. I am, I'm a product of Judaism, and I have gone through all that a devoted Jew is supposed to go through. But not only that, his religious position. It wasn't just his heritage or his background. It was his uh, position. Look at the end of verse 5, a Pharisee. Now, we just read that, and we, we're vaguely familiar with what a Pharisee is. But in Bible times, Pharisees were like a Jewish religious party. These were the most extreme uh, religious people in all of Judaism. Now, let me tell you some of the things about the Pharisees. And when I tell you this, you're going to say, well, what's wrong with that? We all are like that. The Pharisees believed that God had a plan for each person's life. They believed that. The Pharisees were very serious about living a holy and consecrated life before God. In fact, the word Pharisee literally means separated one. They separated themselves from sin. They separated themselves from those who were doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And that's what a Pharisee was. They say, well, that's, that's how we should be. It is how we should be. Pharisees believed in angels. They believed in demons. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the afterlife. They believed in heaven. They believed in hell. The Pharisees believed much of what we believe today. Interestingly, in Bible times, there were approximately 6,000 Pharisees living in the Jerusalem area. 6,000. Now, if you study how many people lived in Jerusalem during the days of Jesus, you're going to get some different numbers. But more than likely, it was somewhere between 30,000 and 50,000 people living in Jerusalem at that time. You go to Jerusalem today, and there are over 900,000 residents in Jerusalem. There are almost a million people today living in Jerusalem. But let's just say in Bible times, there were 30,000. And so 6,000 of those were Pharisees. So 20% of the people living in Jerusalem were Pharisees. They were part of this group. They were part of this movement. You say, well, John, what, what is wrong with, with all those things you've mentioned? Nothing. All, that's all right. The problem the Pharisees had was they would take these laws of God in the Old Testament, and they were so serious to obey those laws that they began thinking that it was through obeying those laws that they could be accepted before God. In other words, some were saying it's not enough just to be born Jewish. There are certain things that we have to do to obtain God's favor so that we can go to heaven when we die. And the, Pharise the strict Pharisee would say, if we keep the laws, if we obey the commands, then God will accept us. So it was a works-based salvation from beginning to end. To make matters worse, the Pharisees took these Old Testament laws, these 613 Old Testament laws, and they began to make additional laws so that you would not break the biblical laws. For example, one of the 613 laws was and is, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, that's, that's a law of God in the Bible. Well, the Pharisees said, okay, that's the law. Don't commit adultery. But what we need to do, we need to create what they called fence laws. 
And they said, we're going to build some fences, which this is not a bad thing to do. This is actually a good thing to do. We're going to build some fences around that law so that we won't commit adultery. And so they would say, for example, this. When you're walking down a street, if you see a member of the opposite sex on the same side of the street that you're on, what you need to do is cross over to the other side of the street. Well, I'm not saying that laws that rules like this, I, I, that's an extreme, that I wouldn't go that far. But I'm not, I'm not saying something like that couldn't help a person to stay out of trouble. But the Pharisees were so strict that now if you're walking down the side of the street, if I am, and now a woman walks down the same side of the street, and I don't cross over, and so this woman and I have passed on the same side of the street. And certainly if we stop to talk, they would say to me, you have broken a fence law. And what happened in time, those fence laws that they had made became as authoritative as the law about thou shalt not commit adultery. This is why in John chapter 4, when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well, and he was talking to her about living water, and the disciples came and saw Jesus talking to a woman by himself. They were thinking, what is this? And even the woman said to Jesus, what is this that you, being a Jew, are talking to me as Samaritan? Not just because he was a man, but because he was a Jew. And so Jesus was saying on things like that, in essence, you've taken it too far. You've gone too far. There's no sin in passing the street uh, with a member of the opposite sex. There's no sin in stopping and having a conversation. There's no sin in that. Now, There are other things that could lead to sin that we should all be careful of. But what I'm saying is these Pharisees, these these 6,000 people, 20% of Jerusalem, were so strict that they were putting their same uh, emphasis on the laws they had made up than they did the laws in the Bible. And so it was virtually impossible to keep up with them. That's why Jesus, and you read in the New Testament in the Gospels, Jesus was all over these Pharisees. Because he was saying to them, you are putting burdens on people's backs that are so heavy that there's absolutely no way that they can hold up under that. You're weighting them down in legalism. And what Jesus was really saying to them, in fact, he said it straight on. He said, you Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside, but you're full of dead men's bones on the inside. And so Jesus said to the Pharisees, yes, it's true that when you see a woman walking down the other side of the street, you cross over, but it's also true that you're committing adultery with her in your heart. But since you crossed over, you don't think you did anything wrong. And so Jesus had great conflicts with the Pharisees because they were all about the external, the outward, the rituals, the rules, and Jesus was all about the heart. And so when Paul says he was a Pharisee, he's saying, in my Jewish world, It's the most conservative group that you could possibly have been a part of. And then if that wasn't enough, Paul at one time had placed his his faith in his own religious zeal, his passion for God. And look in verse number 6. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Did you know that when Paul was persecuting those early Christians, when Paul was going from house to house, Doing and mistreating and abusing and leading even to the death of those Christians. He thought he was doing God a favor. He thought he was right. He had zeal persecuting the church. He thought that was the right thing to do. In fact, when he's traveling in Acts chapter 9 from Jerusalem to Damascus, Syria, and he's on that Damascus road going to Damascus to do further persecution to Christians, 
uh, and this bright light appears, and Jesus appears to him. And remember what Jesus said? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, uh, and that was the first time that Saul had ever thought, now, wait a second, I didn't think I was persecuting you, God. He, of course, he didn't think Jesus was God at that time. He, I thought I was just persecuting these followers of a fo-. But the point is, he had zeal. He had passion. And it says to us that not all zeal is godly zeal. We live in a world full of zeal. We, we live with a lot of zealous people. But just because you're zealous and think you're right, that doesn't mean you are right. Did you know back on September the 11th in 2001, those kamikaze pilots who flew those planes into those buildings, they thought in their mind, they thought they were doing right. They didn't think they were doing wrong. They thought they were doing right. They thought, and that's coming from a completely different religion, but they thought that they were making the ultimate sacrifice for their God and that they would be accepted into eternal paradise because they did what they did, because they killed whom, what they would call infidels, those who didn't practice their religion. But the point is, they were zealous. They had zeal. It was just misdirected zeal. Well, in a similar way, Paul was doing the same thing. Paul was killing He was there and responsible for the death of Christians. He was very zealous. And then his religious achievements. Look at the end of verse 6. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. In other words, these, these laws that Paul had read about all of his life and been taught, he had kept them. Paul hadn't stolen anything. Paul hadn't murdered anybody. Paul had not committed adultery. Paul had not worshipped some other god. His, he had been completely blameless as far as the external keeping of the law was concerned. But I'll show you something interesting. Turn back a few pages in your Bible to Romans chapter number 7. This is one of the most interesting verses in all the Bible. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, Paul is talking about the law of God. And he's talking about how the law of God uh, convicted him of his sin, even though it was not an outward sin. It was an inward sin. And he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. Now watch this next sentence. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. And so when Paul worked his way through those Ten Commandments, Paul was able to say, on all those commandments, I've never broken that. Thou shalt have no other gods. Paul never had any other gods before him. Uh, all, all those laws, no graven image. He had never done that. Don't take God's name in vain. He hadn't done that. Remember the Sabbath. He remembered the Sabbath. Honor your father and the mother. He honored his father and mother. He thought, well, I'm on the first five, I'm fine there. And then coming down the second side, don't murder. I haven't. Don't steal. I haven't. Don't commit adultery. I haven't. Don't bear false witness. I haven't. The first nine commandments, if Paul was giving himself a score, he just said, I haven't broken any of those laws. But when he came to the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, he said, now, wait a second. I can't say I haven't done that. In other words, Paul's saying, I haven't committed adultery, but maybe he had committed adultery in his heart. I'm not saying he had. I'm saying there was some, there was some internal sin that convicted him, uh, and he said, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So his religious achievements were something he was trusting in until he began to look at his own heart. 
And he said, outwardly, I'm okay. I haven't done those things. But inwardly, my heart is not right with God. And so compared to Jesus, all this about Paul, his background and position, his zeal and achievements, it did not amount to anything. Look again in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul said, compared to Jesus, all that stuff, my faith was so wrong, it was so misplaced. Even though it was sincere, it was sincerely wrong. And then he shifts a gear here, and we can notice now the simplicity of saving faith. Look in verse number 9. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And so the simplicity of saving faith. Now, I want to just, we, we have it listed out here. And I want us just to see this quickly tonight. The, what is saving faith? Everybody here tonight has faith. But you have to ask yourself, what is it that you're trusting in? Are you trusting in your background or your position or your zeal or your achievements? Or are you trusting in Jesus? Now, as Paul describes where our faith needs to be, he uses the word righteousness. He talks about his own righteousness, which was outward but not inward. And then he talks about the righteousness of Christ, which is perfect. So let's just look at this. The righteousness that we need to be trusting in is not our own righteousness. It is the righteousness that is given to us from God. It is that God has provided righteousness. Think about this. God is righteous. That just means right, holy, perfect, pure. And in order for us to live with him in heaven, we have to be righteous. God is not going to let unrighteousness into heaven. Now, the problem with that is, in and of ourselves, we're all unrighteous. There's none who is perfect, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet God says, if you want to be right with me, if you want to live in heaven forever, you have to have righteousness. So that's his requirement. But one of the things I love about God, whatever God requires, God always supplies. And here we read that God is giving us a totally different kind of righteousness. Letter B, this righteousness is received by faith. What is this righteousness? It is the righteousness of Jesus. The only truly righteous person who ever lived is Jesus. And the only way that we can be right with God is to receive His righteousness. I'm not to stand before God in my own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, go to Romans. Go back to Romans. I want us to look at two, two little passages here. In chapter number 1, Romans chapter 1 and verse number 16, Paul is talking about this idea of the righteousness of God. And he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, of the good news of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so we encounter this phrase, the righteousness of God. 
It is, it is the righteousness that belongs to God, and it, is, it must become our righteousness. Go to chapter number 3 and begin in, looking in verse 21. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. And so here we have this phrase again, the righteousness of God. But notice what it says, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so a holy, righteous God has said to the world, in order to be right with me, in order to enter my heaven, you have to be righteous. And yet we're all unrighteous. But that's why Jesus came, and he is the righteousness of God, so that if we place our faith in Jesus, we are accredited. We get credit. His, his righteousness is accredited to our account, and we can be made right with God. This righteousness puts us, letter C, in Christ. We're in Christ. Back in Philippians chapter 3, Paul said, Yet indeed I also, or verse 9, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith. In Christ, that's Paul's favorite little phrase, in Christ. The righteousness puts us in Christ, and this righteousness produces a desire to know God, not to be afraid of God through the ups and downs of life. Look in verse 10. Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And so one of the ways that you can know that your faith is saving faith, that your faith is in the right place, that your faith is in Jesus, that your faith is in the righteousness of God, is that when your faith is there, you come alive spiritually. You come to life and you come alive and you have this desire now to know Jesus. And then it says the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. During the ups and downs of life, we have that desire to know God in a deeper and more personal way. And then this righteousness makes us ready for heaven. Again in verse 11. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And that is that we would be ready to go to heaven. Through having our faith. Not in our background or our zeal or any of that. But that we would have our faith in Jesus Christ. I can remember when I was in Baylor. One of my professors was teaching through the book of Romans. I know we're in Philippians, but we've tied into Romans tonight. And he made the statement that I found interesting. He said, as you study church history, it seems that though about every hundred years, somebody rediscovers the doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus Christ. And he told how Martin Luther had discovered that, and he told how John Wesley had discovered that, and he told how others had discovered that. And here we're reading tonight how the Apostle Paul discovered that the only way that we can be right with God is to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in His righteousness. And when we do that, His righteousness is accredited to our account so that one day when we stand before God, we stand before God perfectly cleansed, perfectly whole, perfectly right, perfectly holy, 
Not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness that is in Jesus Christ. Amen? And so tonight, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, what is it that you are trusting in to make you right with God? Now, we're not in a Jewish synagogue tonight. We're in a Christian church. And so you wouldn't give the same answer that some of those, some of my Jewish friends might give. But you might say, well, I've, I've gone to church all my life, or I love God, or I believe the Bible, or I try to live by the golden rule, the Sermon on the Mount. Well, those are all good things to do, but if that's what you're trusting in, you are just as lost as Saul was before he encountered Jesus on that Damascus road. And so tonight, you need to change your faith, shift your faith, and put that faith in Jesus. Theologians call it the great exchange. We give Jesus all of our sins, and in turn for that, He gives us His righteousness so that when God sees us, God doesn't see all of our sins and all of our failures and all the things we've done wrong, but that God sees us covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's why the hymn writer could say, My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me doth plead. If you have never put your faith in Jesus, tonight you should get that, you should do that. You need to do that. Would you pray this prayer right now? Say, Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my heart to forgive my sins, and to make me a Christian. I ask you to save me, and I trust you to do it. I trust you, Jesus. Welcome to my heart. Begin now to make me the person that you want me to be.